So um, one of the things that I had in mind in thinking about talking tonight uh, was that uh, we're going home tomorrow. So I always like to think about something that makes, talking about something that makes the point that this is not a practice that we do on retreat and then forget about, that really I'd like to talk about how I understand this as a pl- this place as a practice place for really cultivating a mind and a heart of clarity and benevolence outside of here. And um, I thought I would start with a poem. And uh, this afternoon I told you that one of the three pieces of uh, teaching material that I carry with me, I, I carry with me, the poem on kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye, the Metta Sutta, and uh, the poem Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda. And um, Gina read the Neruda poem the other day, and it's beautiful. And uh, I have a copy of the poem in Spanish, and it's really beautiful in Spanish, and uh, because I wanted you to hear it in a really beautiful way. I asked Laura to read it so it would be really beautifully read. Also, first of all, because it's so beautiful. And uh, I imagine that there are a significant number of people here for whom Spanish is their original language. So I would like particularly for them to hear it. Let me pin you up, Laura. Okay. If I can. And that's why you have the uh, you you have the translation in front of you, which you can look at or not look at. But if I were you, I would just listen. Okay. A callarse. Ahora contaremos doce y nos quedaremos todos quietos. Por una vez sobre la tierra, no hablaremos en ningún idioma. Por un segundo, detengámonos. No movamos tanto los brazos. Sería un minuto fragante, sin prisa, sin locomotoras. Todos estaríamos juntos en una inquietud instantánea. Los pescadores del mar frío no harían daño a las ballenas y el trabajador de la sal miraría sus manos rotas. Los que preparan guerras verdes, guerras de gas, guerras de fuego, Victorias sin sobrevivientes se pondrían un traje puro y andarían con sus hermanos por la sombra sin hacer nada. No se confunda lo que quiero con la inacción definitiva. La vida es solo lo que se hace. No quiero nada con la muerte. Si no pudimos ser unánimes moviendo tanto nuestras vidas, tal vez no hacer nada una vez. Tal vez un gran silencio pueda interrumpir esta tristeza, este no entendernos jamás y amenazarnos con la muerte. Tal vez la tierra nos enseñe cuando todo parece muerto y luego todo está vivo. Ahora contaré hasta doce y tú te callas y yo me voy. This particular line over here, over here. Si no podemos... Tal vez un gran silencio. Just that little piece. Okay. Uh, Oh, tal vez. Okay. Tal vez no hacer nada una vez. Tal vez un gran silencio pueda interrumpir esta tristeza. Este no entendernos jamás y amenazarnos con la muerte. Tal vez la tierra nos enseñe cuando todo parece muerto y luego todo está vivo. Ahora contaré hasta doce y tú te callas y yo me voy.
So the line that I always wait for is perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. I find, I, I, I think so much about the fact that it says, we'll just count to 12 and we'll see. I take that to mean it's not that hard. If we just stopped for a minute and really looked around and saw what's going on in this world, saw what people are doing to each other, that seeing the degree that we add to the regular pain of old age, sickness and death, of the regular pain of all the things that happen to human beings on this world, that we add to it degrees of extra pain through our ignorance, through greed and hatred and delusion, that it's all over the place, that we don't have to look any place past the front page of the morning newspaper. I went to see, some years ago, I went to see Chagdud Rinpoche. It was a time in my practice that my uh, meditation was quite, uh, um, oh, it it was full of uh, unusual uh, energetic experiences. Was not very comfortable. Um, but and, and I had mixed feelings about it, actually. I was delighted that something was happening, finally. Uh, I also was secretly very proud of myself, all this exotica. Maybe I had kundalini or whatever. Uh, it was also very uncomfortable, and it got in the way of living like a regular person in the world. And I went to see various people to consult about it, and nobody knew what to do about it. And someone said, Chagda's in the East Bay, you could make an appointment. He normally was in Oregon, said you can go see him. So I made an appointment, and I went to see him. And we had a very nice connection. It was hard to understand his English, but if I sat right next to him and looked at him, we could talk to each other. And I told him my whole exotic experience. And um, I thought he would give me some practice to do to calm down the energy or something. And when I got all finished, he looked at me and he said, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So, whoa. Uh, I gave a textbook kind of an answer to that. I said, well, from practicing mindfulness more and more, I will see the degree of suffering in the world. And as I see the degree of suffering in the world, as anyone sees the degree of suffering in the world, their hearts are more and more uh, converted to natural compassion. And he said, no, no, really, he said. He said, how much compassion practice do you do every day? So I had to say, what do you mean? He said, "Uh, how much do you really go out in the street and look around and see how much suffering there is? And for a minute I thought, oh, maybe I should be embarrassed, you know? Maybe he's implying that I'm too uh, self-absorbed. It would have been a reasonable thing to imply. I'm too self-absorbed, or I'm too taken with my own experience, or I'm too full of myself, or whatever. But, you know, he was absolutely fine. There was nothing beyond that. He was just asking, how much do you go out in the street every day and see how much suffering there was? And it was one of the really major important things that a teacher said to me ever. I think about it frequently. It's, It's probably 15 years since he said that. And I think about it a lot, um, especially when I begin to think that I'm first beginning to get it. What happens to me? Has this ever happened to you where you think, I really understand this particular concept, the concept of suffering, concept of uh, impermanence, and concept of interconnection? And then I think, ah, I got it, that insight. And then sometime later I'll think to myself, ah, Now I really have it. When I thought I had it, I didn't have it. Now I have it. And then some while later, when I, you know, I said, oh, that what I thought I had, that wasn't it. This is really it. You know, maybe that's deepening insight. I don't know. I hope it is. But but I I really uh, think of Chagdid when I think of, when I read this Neruda, and I think about it's right there, you know. It's really hard not to see the extra pain in the world from greed, hatred, and delusion, the kinds of things that people do to each other. It's not hard if I look in myself to see the extra pain 
that I make in my own experience with struggling with what I can't change, with wanting things to be different, struggling with my experience as it's arising. And so here we have this opportunity to come together and have our hearts broken in a certain way and say, oh, look what's happening. And really, I think our natural compassion just manifesting itself comes to the end of retreats. And people often say, uh, especially when their experience has been touching to them in some way, it's, it's not unusual, and I, I think it's probably true for most of you, that you come here for even a short time, five days, mind and the heart settle down a little bit, and it's such a pleasure, and you feel, ah, what a refuge. I could live differently than the way I do. Could be a little saner, get a little kinder with yourself. Maybe you have the thought, I'm too hard on myself. My schedule is too hard. I could live differently. Feel a little bit compassion for yourself. Think about the people that you're in relationship with. I always get much more tolerant when I'm on retreat because I feel better and my mind relaxes. Then I think of so-and-so that seems to be difficult to me. And I just have a wiser sense of them. I think, oh, they can't do it any differently. That's the way they are. I get wiser on retreat. Or the wisdom that I have is more available to me. And I get very touched by the amount of struggle that I do in my life. I look around at the people around me. I'm always touched by people on retreat. It's hard to be here. Never mind that it's the most comfortable retreat center I know. It's hard to be here. I mean, even that it's the most comfortable one that I know. You know, my friends and I, we talk about the old days, you know, when this was this and that was that. But I actually love it that the floors in the bathroom are heated here and that the food is reliable and that the beds are comfortable. And the truth is that with the floors heated and the beds comfortable and the food wonderful, everybody's got suffering. And everybody's stuff goes through them. And I look around, and even that we don't talk to each other, many of you I talk to, but you know, these are the people I don't talk to, because I know my own experience, and I know everybody else's, is that they are working with their stuff. And I'm so touched by everybody. I think everybody is. So that one of the things that's not unusual is for people at the end of a retreat to say, I'm a little afraid to go out in the world tomorrow, because I'm... I feel myself quite open and quite loving and quite forgiving. We did that wonderful forgiving meditation, forgiveness meditation. People say, I'm afraid to go in the world. I am too vulnerable. And most often I have taken that as an opportunity to say, I'm thinking about revising it, so I'm kind of asking you about this. I've taken it as an opportunity to say, I actually don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable. I am waiting for the world to become too vulnerable, for every single person to become so vulnerable that they stop and they look around and they burst into tears about what we're doing with each other and sit down and stop. And then we'll make a different world. I would love it if everybody became too vulnerable. I want to talk a little bit, though, about that too vulnerable doesn't mean um, not strong in one's heart. I think there's a way to be strong and wise and firm and actually secure and completely vulnerable. I think, by the way, about vulnerable, when Gina told the story the other day about His Holiness um, crying as he taught, I've seen him do it, and I'm equally touched He's reading the passage about under no circumstances should you let anger stay in you. Anger arises, but as soon as it does, to convert it to something other than ill will. And the chapter in the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, in which he discusses in so many ramifications, this might make you angry, you might do this to overcome it. This might make you angry, in that case do this. This might make you angry. In that case, do that. And he comes to the end of the chapter and he starts to cry. And it isn't that he hasn't read the chapter before and actually taught it many times before. I think it so touches him 
that the business of the heart is to keep itself open. It touches me enormously. So what I'm thinking about is uh, a number of people uh, asked me about uh, the meditation this afternoon, speaking of vulnerable, and I had said, I say to myself, uh, may I meet this moment fully with an undefended heart? And a number of people said, undefended, really? Uh, is that wise? You know, it's a, so I'm, I'm trying to look for a better word, actually. Maybe it's not a good word. Maybe the word I'm looking for is non-defensive heart. Or um, um, non-combative heart. Maybe that would be better. I thought about all the ways in which I know that it's possible to be firm in one's resolve and have a good heart. I'll tell you what I think in Buddhism is the paradigmatic um, uh, image of that. Here's a story about the night of the Buddha's enlightenment. It is said, you probably know, maybe some of you don't know, so you probably know that after the Buddha left his home and his life and went out and really in search of the answer to the, what is the cause in the end of suffering. He spent three years with one teacher and three years with another teacher, the greatest teachers of his time. He developed tremendous uh, capacity for um, focusing his mind, for concentrating his mind. His teachers thought he was very accomplished. They asked him to teach with them. And he said, no, because even though I can do all these austerities, hold my mind quite still, I have not yet discovered the truth about suffering and the end of suffering, and I need to go and discover that. And then in the legend, he goes off to Bodhgaya and sits down under a particular tree there. And on that night, says what I said this afternoon about I'm not going to get up until I have understood fully. And then he sits. And in the morning, by first light, is ready to say what, ready to declare that he has actually understood fully. In that particular story, the visual that I see when I tell it is a picture of the Buddha sitting, radiating around him a field of tremendous equanimity that is characterized by metta. Because the story is that as he sat down, the forces of Mara, who is the personification of distraction, Uh, the personification of all the things that come up in the mind to keep it from seeing clearly. Mara, the evil one, comes as the Buddha is sitting and tempts him, says to him, listen, why are you going to give give up the life? Go, Just go be a plain monk and accumulate merit by doing good deeds. And the Buddha says, no, I'm just going to do this instead. I'm going to see through, I'm going to break through. And uh, the legend has it that Mara then assails him with really frightening thoughts that characterize his spears. So at this point, I am visualizing that here's the Buddha radiating this enormous field of metta around him. Uh, And here these spears of uh, all kinds of frightening things, like an attack, like uh, Lord of the Rings spears coming over, uh, flying over towards the Buddha who is sitting there immovable, full of equanimity, and equanimity that radiates as metta. Mara then comes back with a display of erotic temptations to also pull the Buddha off his seat of equanimity. All these erotic temptations, and he just sits. He is clear of mind, he stays awake, he stays alert, and he stays completely radiating his field of goodwill. The truth to tell, I don't know if this is uh, some sort of sacrilegious uh, thought to have, but I grew up uh, when there was a uh, a commercial for Colgate toothpaste that uh, you might remember, where it said Colgate toothpaste has Gardol in it, and Gardol makes an invisible shield around your teeth and protects it. So I think about the Buddha sitting with his Gardol invisible shield protecting him. But, so, either that's sacrilege or it isn't. But I love to think of the Buddha radiating such goodwill 
that his good will becomes the antidote to distraction. When Larry did that beautiful metta this afternoon, and he went through all of those different categories of people, including difficult people, towards whom we might have goodwill. I was thinking this is the ultimate good wish. It's just wishing well, regardless of what, one's own heart remains incorruptibly loving. And that, I think, I, I, I trust, is the greatest refuge. It's hard to keep your heart incorruptibly loving. We get startled out of it all the time. Life challenges us one way or another way or another way or another way. And all of a sudden, we're not in that place. I actually can think about the ways in which I learn from my heart that I'm not in that place I love the fact that my heart or my mind prompts me about it. This happened not so long ago. I was uh, at home and uh, sitting at my computer and uh, and writing and just writing and having a good time. And I guess in the middle of writing, the phone rang. And it was my friend Martha. And Martha and I are very dear friends. And uh, I picked up the phone, and she was calling to tell me that her uh, brother, uh, who at at that point was living on the East Coast, uh, had uh, suddenly taken a turn for the much worse in his illness. I knew he was sick, but she called to say that he had taken a turn for the much worse, and that she was going to go need to be with him in um, in Massachusetts, and so I talked for a few minutes with her about it, and you know, I, I, I thought I felt sad, and anyway, I talked. I tried to sound as concerned and as sad, and as, and then after a while, we hung up the phone, and I went back to writing, and uh, I was eager to go back to writing because uh, just before the phone had rung. I had thought that I had some really good idea. I was on a roll with whatever it was that I was writing. And I realized that when I went back to the writing, I couldn't remember what that great idea was. And I heard myself think, so inconvenient of Jack to get sick worse just today. <laughs> and I really, I winced. I saw a few people here wince. So that's my, that's my confession. I heard my mind think that. So inconvenient of Jack. I thought, whoa. So I turned off the computer and I went away from my desk and I lit some candles and I sat down on my rocker and I looked out the window and I rocked a little bit and I thought about Jack. I thought about uh, the way that uh, Martha's always telling me that uh, Jack is calling her his baby sister. She's 62 years old, his baby sister. I don't know Jack really well, but I know about him. I met him once or twice. I know about his children and grandchildren. And I love Martha. And I thought about Martha's mother and Jack's mother, who's coming on 90, and here's Jack really sick and likely to die. And began to think about uh, all the other people that I knew who weren't well at that point. And I really wished Jack well, and I hoped that he would be supported. And I thought about Eloise, Martha's mother, and made some metta prayers for her and for Martha. Then I thought of all the other people that I knew who weren't well, and I thought about them and wished them well. It was actually in the fall, so I was looking out at the plants that were left on my, um, on my deck, and I was noticing how the leftover flowers were all dying. I was thinking about how everything dies and really feeling somehow a certain amount of awareness of my own mortality. Yet another fall has come and gone. Then I began to think about the fact that uh, on that particular day, everyone in my family was well. And I really appreciated that so much. And I began to make prayers for them that they should stay well, 
And I realized it's somehow held in the context of the plants are dying, everything dies, Jack is dying, we all will. Such a miraculous thing to have people well on any given day and to realize. One of the poems that I've been uh, uh, remembering sometimes to take and read with me is a poem by Jane Kenyon that begins, This morning I got up and um, had uh, a bowl of cereal for breakfast and a fresh, ripe peach. It could have been otherwise. And all morning long, I did work that I love. And then I had lunch with my partner, and afterwards we lay down on the bed together. It could have been otherwise. And I think to myself, that awareness, it could have been otherwise. On any given day, in any given moment, makes me so appreciative of the fact that I have this moment of life in which I have the possibility of connecting with everything and everyone that I love with blessing, or sometimes getting preoccupied in my own ego projects. And I'm happy you're blessing. This is a practice that we've been doing all week. Not of forgetting ourselves, including ourselves, but including ourselves in the practice of appreciation, in the practice of well-wishing. So when I talked to the people who asked about an undefended heart today, I thought about the, the uh, image of the Buddha sitting there under that tree. And I thought to myself, his heart was full of love. And that was a tremendous defense. That here he said to Mara, you can't come and get me. Actually, there's a, there's a poem in the Sutta Nipata about it. And uh, this is, I'm paraphrasing, this is not the poem. But he said, uh, I am safe from you, Mara. I have concentration, I have mindfulness, I have wisdom, I have energy, and I have faith. The five spiritual faculties. What the Buddha taught is that as we develop those faculties, all of which you've been developing all week long, they become ultimately spiritual powers. And they take care of you. They really support you. I'd like to think that that was some amount of mindfulness that woke me up at that moment that I had that thought so inconvenient of Jack. An amount of mindfulness, an amount of sensitivity about how I felt. And, said, and, it, and actually it was not so much, it wasn't a moment of feeling guilty or embarrassed. It was just a moment of what am I doing? I don't want to do this. This is not what I want to do. This is what I want to do. I actually think a lot about when we talk about this practice as a practice of liberation and freedom. I think it's the freedom to choose what will make us happy. Really to recognize where my mind is going is not in a direction that's, that's conducive to happiness. This is more conducive to happiness. I thought a lot actually all afternoon about what's the word that I want to use if not undefended, certainly non-contentious, peaceful, maybe loving, maybe resolutely loving heart. And I thought about the, the difference between being completely loving and um, somebody asked about, you know, if you're so loving, you might give yourself away, you might not take care of yourself. I actually think really that really loving means you take care of yourself as well. It doesn't mean not discerning what is wise action means discerning wise action towards oneself and towards other people somebody asked about boundaries I think actually when uh, when Jack was telling a story the other night and he said uh, that Gandhi said okay this is my boundary I won't take any more of this I'm going to fast that that was his way of setting a firm, non-violent boundary to a situation that was not acceptable to him. doesn't have to do with saying everything is okay. Doesn't have to do, certainly doesn't have to do with saying I like everything or I agree with everything. A lot of, there are a lot of things that I don't like. There are people that I don't like. There are ideas I don't like. There are tasks I don't like. 
There are all kinds of things that I don't like. What I don't mind not liking. I really want not to have ill will come up pursuant to it. I want to keep my heart free from ill will. My grandfather, by the way, I thought I would share with you this practice. I don't think that he knew that this was a practice. I think he spoke in this uh, in this particular speech pattern because he was born in Austria and uh, uh, it, he was a Jew from Austria and it was a way, it, it, it's part of Eastern European Jewish folk tradition. But he never said a person's name without declining that name with one of two phrases. So he would say, for instance, my daughter Gladys, may she rest in peace, had a had a much more relaxed uh, nature than my daughter Miriam, may she live and be well. <laughs> and, and those were the two phrases which you said whenever you mentioned a person's name. And it didn't even have to be a comparison. He could say, uh, my grandson Henry, he should live and be well, is a very good cook. It didn't have to be any kind of invidious comparison with somebody else. He could say, um, my wife Bessie, she should live and be well, has become much more cranky in the last five years, which is why he came to live with me in his 90s. She should live and be well. But it was actually a protection mantra. I think he actually may have thought that someone asked him, that it was a protection mantra that you put over a person when you say a person's name out in the world, my daughter Miriam, my daughter Gladys, that you have to protect it, she should live and be well, she should rest in peace, etc. In case there's some evil spirits out there that might notice that you name somebody and go get them, so you put a protective mantra over it. But I I think that's probably what he thought, if he thought about it at all. But I actually think that that the protection was on himself that the protection was on himself. Because I have actually taken on that habit with some of my friends. We are doing it now. So if I find myself saying, my daughter sounds like she should live and be well, it's probably because I'm about to say something that she has annoyed me about. <laughs> and, and that I am protecting myself from ill will about it. Which is, I mean, I'm, I'm serious about that. That works. I actually suggest it to you as a practice. You know. My husband, he should live and be well. You know, that, it's a very good protection. But I think that the protection is you protect yourself with your own goodwill. I really want my heart to be able to discern this is what I like, this is what I not like. You think about... Um, Gina uh, quoted from uh, Dr. King the other night, and I was thinking about the particular lines in the end of the letter from the Montgomery jail where uh, also taking a stand about anything can happen to us and we will still love you. We will still love you. And we shall so in the end appeal to your heart that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. I think if we are going to convert the world to peace We will have to do it through love, resolutely loving, and that will have to spread. My friend Sharon Salzberg, who's my metta teacher, said, I think this is the prayer for the whole world. Who could not say it? When you think about metta, it's a non-parochial prayer. It doesn't have any... um, dogma in it, it's not a belief system, it's just a practice. May all beings be very well. I think taking a stand resolutely for the well-being of all beings. I'll tell you one more story of one more person resolutely taking a stand, because I love to think about this. Um, Mahagosananda is very old now. In uh, 1950 years after the liberation of Auschwitz, so it would have been 1995, uh, there was a, um, a convocation in April of that year in Auschwitz commemorating the uh, 50th year liberation of Auschwitz. A friend of mine was there as a, as a rabbi, as a delegate from this country. Mahagosananda was there. 
I was a, a, a very dramatic kind of several days together that culminated in on the day of the 50th anniversary, symbolically opening the gates of Auschwitz and this group of people who had been meeting together and convening together walked out of the gates symbolically. My hair stands on end when I tell you that. Mahagosananda was in that group of people. In, in August of that year, commemorating the 50th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, uh, another group of people that was the continuation of that walk, actually, from Auschwitz all the way through, as far as you could walk, but really the journey, all the way to Hiroshima at the end. And some of the same people, including Mahagosananda, who were there in the beginning, were there in the end. And uh, my friend Sheila said to me, Mahagosananda didn't say very much when we talked to him. Mostly his additions to the meetings were, may all beings be peaceful and may all beings be happy. That's about all he had to say, not much more than that. But if you know that Mahagosananda was fluent in, I don't know, Jack knows eight or nine languages, um, a wonderful scholar and an extraordinary force for peace in Cambodia. Mahagosananda is the uh, senior recognized monk, prelate in the uh, Theravada tradition in Cambodia. He was there through all of the terrible Cambodia times. A tremendous force for peace during that time. And Sheila said he didn't say much except all beings peaceful and happy. The following year, I met him in um, uh, India. He was one of the people who was a delegate to uh, a meeting of Western Buddhist teachers uh, with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. It was a great privilege for me to be there. Jack was one of the people there. There were 25 other Western Buddhist teachers, and uh, Mahagosananda was able to come along and join that delegation. And we all, we all uh, congregated in Delhi and then took the night train up to uh, uh, some city up in the Punjab and from there in a car all the way to Dharamsala. And uh, on the night that we were to leave Delhi, we were in the Imperial Hotel in Delhi and it was supper time. And most people had left to go have supper somewhere. And I didn't want supper. And uh, Mahagosananda is a monk, so he doesn't take meals after noon. And he was sitting in the uh, entrance lobby of the Imperial Hotel, right across from me, in his orange robes. And the Cambodian robes are uh, much more bright orange, you know, than the normal... uh, than, say, the Burmese darker brown robes that I'm used to. And I looked over at Mahagosananda sitting with his legs tucked up in his orange robes, and he looked just like a pumpkin sitting on the... <laughs> it was just with a serene face. And I... But he, I knew that he could take tea afternoon. So I went to talk to him, and I said, um, Venerable, can I bring you tea? And uh, he said, yes, thank you very much. I said, I'll bring it. There was a tea shop right in, in the edge of the lobby. And he said, oh, I'll go with you. So he got up and he came with me into the tea shop and I ordered tea for the two of us. And uh, was sitting quietly, I guess. And I said to him, um, what are you doing uh, these days? I, I, I guess I told him, I know you were in Auschwitz last year and that you were part of the delegation that came to Hiroshima, what are you doing now? He said, I'm working very hard at um, trying to get an end to landmines in the world. He said, they're a very serious problem in Cambodia, landmines left over, people are getting maimed and killed all the time. He said, so I'm working very hard to get a ban against landmines so we can rid the world of them. So I said, oh, is there something I can do to help you? And he said, yes, there is. And he reached up into his sleeve and he took out a petition. He said, I have this petition <laughs> to, end, to end landmines in the world. He said, if you want to take it back home to, with you and get this petition filled out and then you can send it to, I guess, the UN or whatever. 
And I thought to myself, he doesn't have to say very much at all. He just goes about manifesting peace and keeping <laughs> petitions for landmine removal up his sleeve. That so moved me. I think to myself, may we all be one sleeve away from some extremely noble cause. Then he was here in, uh, in the, for the uh, conference that we had in 2000, 2001. We had a conference of uh, 200 and some Buddhist teachers from all over the world, Western Buddhist teachers, teachers from Asia. It was a wonderful conference. Went on for several days in this very room. And Mahagosananda was here, and he was very quiet, because in truth, he's gotten... 10 years older, and his uh, memory is not exactly the same as it used to be. Sometimes he got a little disoriented about where his room was. So, But he came by himself. Uh, um, a friend of mine uh, was the person who went to the airport to pick him up and bring him here. Completely sweet, uh, completely happy to sit on the sidelines and listen to other people. And at the very end, uh, just to close the conference, Jack asked him if he would do refuges and precepts to close. And he got up here, and he did. How many languages did he do them in? Did he do them in French and English? Do you remember? Yeah, he did them in about five languages. He speaks 50 So here he is, and... Uh, We've all been a little bit looking after him because it's not quite the way it used to be. But here, would you? Here Jack invites him to come up, and he comes up, and in several languages, refuges and precepts. And I thought to myself, when I get very, very old, in case I lose everything else, I want to remember something wonderful, like may all beings be peaceful and happy. I'd like to remember refuges and precepts. I'd like to remember the metta resolves. You know, I I know the words to all kinds of musical comedy songs from the 1950s. (laughs) I would trade them for... I mean, if I get to choose about what I want to have left, I'd much rather have, may all beings be peaceful and happy, may you be peaceful and happy. I'll tell you one more story that I thought about today when Larry was doing that beautiful metta of resolute good wishes. Also came up because I was thinking when I said earlier that an insight into suffering, but an insight as well into the compassionate heart that is our natural endowment is as near as you if you look at it. If you look with your eyes, it's right in front of you. All over the place, there are people doing kindnesses, if you watch. And all over the place, there are people doing madnesses. There was a um, front page of the New York Times, Sunday New York Times, um, a year ago in the spring, just after the invasion of Iraq. It was a picture of a marine medic. Turns out, I did research more recently, he's from Folsom or Chico, somewhere in the Central Valley in California. A marine medic um, in combat gear, the helmet, in a battlefield. And you can actually see him. This is a picture taken in the middle of war because behind him you can see Soldiers in battle kind of postures, leaning over, running with guns. Someone has taken this picture from a battlefield. War is happening behind him. And here is a marine medic sitting on the ground, holding in his hands a small child. child I actually thought was a little girl when I saw it, because the child is wearing a a pink pink sweater. uh, It looks like a two-year-old child three-year-old child. And uh, turns out it's a little boy and because I researched the picture. But it said in the caption underneath, uh, this is a marine medic who is holding a child whose mother has just been killed in the crossfire. 
And uh, I looked at it and I thought, maybe this will be the picture that will end this war. There have been pictures that have had decisive effects on other wars. Maybe this will be the photo that will end this war. Maybe people will look at this photo and they will think as I do. It doesn't matter which side fired the bullet that killed that child's mother. That child's mother is the same dead, regardless of who did it. I look at the picture of that marine medic, which just... And his face looks so confused. He's holding the child in such a sweet way. But can you imagine what can possibly be in his mind? What can you be thinking about? This child's mother has just been killed. I think who could look at that picture and see people killing each other? Children's mothers are getting killed. Children are getting killed. People are getting killed. All these soldiers in their army gear, they have mothers somewhere and they're getting killed. What is the matter with us? And here is this marine medic holding this child in such a beautiful way. And he stopped. He sat down. The war is continuing, but he stopped and sat down. And I thought, what if they all stopped and sat down? What if everybody said, whoa, we can't do this? I thought it would be the picture that would change the war, and it didn't. Not yet. But I told about that picture uh, at some teaching that I did not long after that. And somebody in, uh, and it wasn't here at Spirit Rock, it was somewhere on the East Coast. And someone went home from that teaching and sent me a present that they had had made. They got that article out of the paper. They looked it up, they researched it, they got it. They had an artist make a shrine out of it. And it's a little shrine, like this, fits on a little table in my study. And the door's open. It's a little red shrine. Looks like a little house, and the door's open. It's got a heart on the front of it. And the door's open, and there's a picture of the marine medic, and it's framed in there. And around it, this artist has uh, done all kinds of symbols of broken hearts and uh, pain in the world and compassion in all the different kinds of ways that you might visualize it. And around it are uh, blessings up and down the sides of this as you open. I think there are 108. I'm pretty sure that there are 108. I counted them. But there are blessings, and they're all different. You know, there are 108 blessings on a mala, so I think there are 108. And they're all different. And all of the ones that you've heard here May you be peaceful, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering, Uh, may you have mental happiness, may you have physical happiness, Uh, may you have ease of well-being, may you feel protected and safe, may you feel contented and pleased, may your physical body support you with strength, may your life unfold smoothly with ease. All the regular blessings are on there. And every other possible blessing, they're all 108 different ones. And... I was thinking about it when Larry was doing his this afternoon. He tells me there were seven. May you feel love. May you be able to love completely. May you be able to feel love completely. May you feel loved. So here are my 108. I was telling Larry and Gina, actually, that they are completely the best things that you would wish for anybody in a whole world. All of those things, plus... May you have a lot of friends. May you go to a lot of good movies. (laughs) May you go on a lot of picnics. May you make love often. So Gina said, may you make love often well. (laughs) And Larry said, may you make love often loud. (laughs) So I said... I'm going to tell that. Is that all right? They said, yeah, sure. Go for it. You know what's a miracle? That there is such capacity to inflict suffering, so much ignorance in the world. And yet, we have the capacity to have those kind of hearts. That's a miracle. You know, I said in the beginning of the week that 
we were lighting these candles outside all week and thinking uh, about illuminating our hearts so that we see more and more clearly. And there are miracle stories associated with Hanukkah, but uh, they're mostly legends, like all miracle legends. I think what's not a legend and what's really a miracle is that we each of us have that capacity to convert our hearts to places of peace. We get frightened, we get overwhelmed, we get confused, we feel ashamed, we feel grief-stricken. Those are the five ways, I think, that our hearts really get wounded. And those five um, spiritual faculties, spiritual powers, mindfulness, concentration, and faith, and wisdom, and energy. There are ways in which they all come together in different patterns to address being frightened, being confused, being tired, being ashamed and humiliated, and being grief-stricken. They're all permutations of each other, really. Trying to think of which one I want to tell you a short story about in the few minutes left. Maybe I'll tell you a faith one, because I don't know if Jack knows this, but I want to tell it because faith is based on wisdom, is based on paying attention, is based on knowing you have a choice, is based on being able to really concentrate. Twelve years ago, uh, my younger son had cancer, and uh, that was a very unusual kind of... uh, dermatological cancer all over his body and he was treated with radiation and it seemed to go away and he's well now. A year later he was uh, found that he, it was discovered that he had a tumor behind one of his eyes uh, and it was unclear whether the tumor was benign or not benign or whether it was related and a recurrence to the malignancy that he'd had a year before whether it was non-malignant, whether it was related, what it meant. And it was determined that he needed to have surgery to take it out so that people could know. And the night before the surgery, Jack called me at home, knowing that it was going to happen. And uh, he said, "Um, how are you? And I knew in that moment that I had a dozen answers available to me for how I was primary among them, probably terrified. I'm terrified. But I chose to say I'm fine. I said, I'm fine. He said, I know. And I knew that he knew that I was terrified. He knows me well. He knows me a long time. And there's nothing that I could think of that's worse terrifying than the loss of somebody that I know. But I also knew that he knew that I knew that A, whatever was true about Peter's eye and Peter's tumor was already true. It was, you know, it either was or it wasn't. I didn't know yet. It either would be or wouldn't be, and then we would do whatever we needed to do if it was or it wasn't. And there was a piece of me in response to his question. I have no idea whether he asked it with great design and advance and knew that it would work out that way, But I value it and treasure it very much because I think of it as bootstrap faith that in that moment I had the opportunity to reach into my heart and know of all the things that were there, including I'm terrified, was the possibility of saying I'm fine, which connected me to the place in myself that I knew that whatever was going to happen was already happening and we would do whatever we had to do and that life would continue to unfold as always it had, that these kinds of things happened to people, that I devoutly wanted him to be well, but that wanting was not a part of what was going to determine the outcome the following day. I spent the following morning with my daughter-in-law and with my grandchildren, and I concentrated as best I could on taking care of them and saying to myself over and over, You don't know yet, and you're going to do what needs to get done. And he was fine. He was fine. It was unrelated. It was benign. 
I cried afterwards. But I tell you that story because I think that, the, that really it depended on a certain amount of faith that I really count as having come from having paid attention to my experience for the last 30 years in this way and paid attention to maybe not as heavy experiences as that, but some heavy ones, a lot of not so heavy ones, and coming to really see that things change They are what they are. They are what they are because of lawful conditions. There's a certain comfort that I take in the fact that they are what they are because of lawful conditions. There's no one to be mad at. Things are just what they are. And we do what we need to do. So the question connected me with my faith, which reminded me of what I knew to be true, which somehow helped me through the following morning, which allowed me to keep myself focused on what I was doing, which kept me from losing my energy by being hysterical about it. And got through the morning, I was able to be there for my daughter-in-law. And then afterwards, we all cried, actually. So that's how those faculties work, by the way. Sometimes faith comes up first, sometimes wisdom comes up first. Sometimes energy, sometimes I think, ah, I had better take some breaths now and concentrate because I'm not seeing clearly. Sometimes the mindfulness first. But I think about the Buddha sitting there and saying, it's okay, I can continue to love in this moment and I'm safe. I don't know a safer refuge than a completely loving heart. So I'm working on it. So I was hoping you would read the poem again. You want it again, don't you? <laughs> I'll pin it on you. Okay. And we can, uh, we can all make a hope that the world will stop for 12. <coughs> the world will stop and count to 12 or 40 or 300, or 2,000, or 500,000, or whatever it needs to count to before it sees what it's doing to itself and begins to take care of itself. A callarse. Ahora contaremos 12 y nos quedaremos todos quietos. Por una vez sobre la tierra no hablaremos en ningún idioma, por un segundo, detengámonos. No movamos tanto los brazos. Sería un minuto fragante, sin prisa, sin locomotoras. Todos estaríamos juntos en una inquietud instantánea. Los pescadores del mar frío no harían daño a las ballenas y el trabajador de la sal miraría sus manos rotas. Los que preparan guerras verdes guerras de gas, guerras de fuego, victorias sin sobrevivientes, se pondrían un traje puro y andarían con sus hermanos por la sombra, sin hacer nada. No se confunda lo que quiero con la inacción definitiva. La vida es solo lo que se hace. No quiero nada con la muerte. Si no pudimos ser unánimes moviendo canto, tanto nuestras vidas, Tal vez no hacer nada una vez. Tal vez un gran silencio pueda interrumpir esta tristeza, este no entendernos jamás y amenazarnos con la muerte. Tal vez la tierra nos enseñe cuando todo parece muerto y luego todo está vivo. Ahora contaré hasta doce y tú te callas y yo me voy. So we'll sit for a minute.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on December 11, 2004. It is an offering of the 